Well, a welcome in, everyone, and a happy Thursday. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Of course, it is this week in hockey, and I am ecstatic about this one tonight, Breadman. The legend himself, no, I'm not talking about Joe Vitale. I am talking about Doc Emmerich, the national broadcaster who called it a career, is joining us tonight, Joey V, and I am excited to talk with him, to get some stories, find out why he decided to call it a career, and frankly, find out if he remembers any Joe Vitale goal calls that he had in the NHL. Well, yeah, there's only going to be a couple there. But, hey, start all. You kind of hurt my feelings there to start things off here tonight. With uh, You kind of pi- hyped it up like I was the legend, and then all of a sudden you said, I'm not talking about you. So there's someone more greater out there than me, you're saying? Well, no, there, there's nobody that's greater than Joe Vitale. But, I mean, Doc Emmerich would be up there, right? Yeah, no, I, I'll give him. Only, you know, there's only a few people. There's only a few people out. No, I'm only kidding. Hey, listen, no, I'm excited about this conversation um, as well. Coming up with the big Doc, and gosh, what a what an amazing career it's been for him. Number one, and what a what an instrumental role he's played not only on my career as a broadcaster. I know he's played a lot in the years as well, Alex. So I'm looking forward to getting into a little bit of that. Uh, maybe finding out what some of his favorite moments were throughout his career and. And kind of what he's going to be up to now moving forward. So yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great conversation with the old doc. It, it's incredible, like forty plus years. Like, can you imagine Joe doing something for forty plus years like Emmerich has done, and then nothing, like just retiring? Like I and and he'll talk with us about how he's still kind of out of the bullpen for the national broadcast for NBC if they ever need him, but. I mean, to just stop it after 40-plus years, I can't imagine what that would be like. It's going to be an adjustment, I would imagine, in his first year. You know, I know he's got a couple dogs at home. That's probably going to keep him a little preoccupied. But, you know, it, it, it's one – I'm interested to know if he's – if anything with the pandemic has affected this decision. You know, yeah. uh, you know, calling the games from his home throughout the games in Edmonton and Toronto this past season, I wonder if that's kind of – it kind of helped, helped, maybe helped him reevaluate things. I'm sure he was getting close to the end anyway with his age, but kind of the state of the world, what it was in August for the playoffs, and then what the uncertainty is moving forward. You have to, you have to wonder if that, if that's played a significant role in his decision here moving forward. Yeah, I agree. So we're excited to talk with him. He's going to join us uh, at around uh, at around six fifteen tonight. We'll get to to Doc Emmerich joining us. Um, but I want to get into a couple of other things, Joe, before that. And we'll get into some Blues topics as well. But uh, the national stage of this one, and I think this is important because uh, reports have come out the last couple of days, at least, that it sounds like at least some owners feel it's best to just not play the NHL season. And, Joe, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I asked you, are we certain that we're even going to get an NHL season? And right now, at least from some of these reports, it sounds like there's a chance that we don't see a season. Alex, it's going to be a little interesting moving forward. I know that for a lot of fans and myself and like you, you're hoping for as long of a season as possible. Well, you got to be careful what you wish for because, or at least keep, at least have it in perspective about what you really want. Because while we're sitting here thinking, gosh, it'd be nice to have 60 games or 70 games, it's, you know, 45, eh, 40, eh, right? But I mean, there there is speculation now that we won't even see 40. In fact, we may see zero next year and and you know what I, I don't think these are tactics to scare anyone or i think this is a reality because you look at the season being pushed back to february uh, the reality that you know hockey may not have an opportunity to put fans in the building because it's closed can they put 50 percent or more in the building well if you can't do that you know owners are going to be looking at this thing from a financial standpoint as well 
if, if you can't get 60 to 70% capacity in these arenas, right? So you're going to be losing money off of, of revenue ticket sales. Not to mention, Alex, this, this is the big kicker. Just keep an eye on this one. You have to still pay your players if you start the season, right? So if there's so much uncertainty with how many fans you can get in the building and you're worried about losing money, well, you're still paying the players what they what they deserve, right? Their contracts are, are set. So the owners are not only going to be losing money from ticket sales, they're going to be losing money from the money going out to players, right? So from what I've gathered, and I think this is accurate, I have to double-check my, my, my facts here, but if the season starts – and they realize it's not working, the owners owe those players all their money. Wow. But if the season does not start, then the owners are not obligated to pay the players their money. And of course, obviously they're not going to be losing, uh, they're going to be losing money, but they're not to worry about the games and it's how many fans are going to be coming in the building as well. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea if you're an owner, right? And there's so much uncertainty, you don't know how this thing's going to go. Is it worth it to you to not even start the season and just, you know, clean the hands and wrap up and start next year because then these players, all these millions of dollars are completely off the books, Alex. Well, and it's not just hockey right now, Joe. I mean, remember before baseball came back, there were owners that were saying it was better off not to play the season because they were losing more money in terms of ticket and gate revenue than what they were making in the television deals. And frankly, I think a lot of teams feel that way, more so with the NHL. And this is intriguing to me because let's not forget that the expansion for Seattle of course is in the 2022 season so not this upcoming season but the season after is when Seattle's expected to come into play so if the NHL returns they got to get the season done before the Olympics they also have to get the season done before so that they can give enough time for the Seattle expansion to come through and they're getting a lot of money on that expansion fee so on one side, I see where the owners are coming from, but on the other side, Joe, if I'm not mistaken, what was it? That was $300 million that the NHL got for Seattle coming into the league. Would that be enough to, I guess, get some of these teams through this shortened season? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I think that number's pretty pretty close to being accurate there. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you look at what the hockey has witnessed from baseball. I'm glad you brought up the baseball because – that was a platform for the NHL now to look at from an owner standpoint. Okay, what what do the book, their books look like now, given what just happened? Yeah, the TV money is great for baseball and basketball and football. It's not nearly as good for hockey, but can we still make this work? Can we still make this function? You know, it's the, the owners are not making money next year if they play hockey. The question is, how much money are they willing to lose? And and I think that that is something that collectively they're going to come together and they're going to make they're going to make the, the decision for them. And in some ways, it's kind of like a lockout. Uh, do you even have the the league go, or do you just push this whole thing back? Uh, the Seattle coming into into next season, uh, not this coming season, but the one after that, as you mentioned, um, is it if if you try to crunch something in and it's all disorganized and you're losing money, and then you got to rebuild and and try to get energy for a new team coming in? I mean, or is it worth just you know scratching the whole year and just really just saying, okay, in August, boom, we're going, we got a new team, it's going to be a huge bash, things are going to be amazing, whatever, and then you just kind of start fresh for the 82 game season then. Gosh, Alex, I don't know. I just uh, thinking about this the other day. It just hearing the owners say this. You know what? They don't have a bad point because you know I said if, if you start and they end up shutting this thing down for whatever reason, these players are sitting on home and they're still going to be making their money eventually. And that that's a big ticket for these owners 
who, who are not seeing any money coming into these teams. So it's interesting to keep an eye on for sure. Well, and this is the quote, and it's from Emily Kaplan and Greg Wyshynski's piece on ESPN is where Joe and I are talking about this. This was the quote. According to several sources, a few owners have suggested to Bettman that the league might be better off financially if it shuts down next season since playing in empty arenas could be crippling to the bottom line. The NHL is still very much a gate-driven league in comparison to a league like the NFL, which draws most of its revenue from media rights. Bettman responded that the NHL can't lose a season because it's too damaging in long term as the league has learned before in lockout season. So that's just kind of the mindset right now from the owner's side and from Gary Bettman's side. One more, Joe, before we take a break and we'll get to Doc Emmerich who's joining us tonight, the legendary broadcaster who called it a career a couple of weeks ago. The player side of this one, because if I'm not mistaken, I've heard some rumblings and and I've, I've heard from some people that the players aren't happy right now because there is a lot of uncertainty that they're going through, which they kind of need a heads up in advance of preparing for a season if it's going to happen. Well, yes, yeah, another thing too. I mean, listen, there's about a good handful of Blues players that are still here. A lot of them are Canadians. And you wonder, why are they still here? Why don't they just go back home? Well, a couple things. A, one, like you just mentioned, they don't know when the season's going to start. They're kind of hoping for a mid-January and why go home if you can't. And the other thing is too, just getting back to Canada uh, with the quarantine and then coming back to us in the quarantine. And some of these players are worried out if they go back home or they go to Europe, are they going to be allowed to come back to America? And right. some countries don't even allow Americans to come. So uh, the players are, they're, they're really staying put. Uh, a lot of them are in the hometowns, but there's a huge handful of players. Uh, surprisingly, they are in St. Louis. They're training every day. They're skating out at Centene. And they're just kind of wishing and waiting and hoping, kind of like they were back in you know uh, March, May, June, and July of this past summer it's kind of the same old feeling so it's got to be frustrating i mean how do you manage your body how do you manage your mind how do you how do you plan for anything uh, it'd be nice to have at least a tentative date in mind like we talked about uh, last week now i think there's works about the nba's players coming together and making the decision on when their season will start and getting like the okay i think it's sometime mid-december so at least they have something on the books where we're saying, hey, we're going to come together and make a decision on this day. So maybe you don't need a decision on when the hockey's going to actually start, but maybe maybe have like a, a date in mind where we're going to say, hey, we're coming together on this day and we are going to make a decision about the season coming up. At least players then will know, okay, at least there's a date to look forward to about what the heck's going on. Uh, but yeah, players are in limbo, man. It, it's hard to manage. It's hard to know how hard to push it on the ice. You know how to hard to push your body, to give your body more rest, um, you know, what areas of focus should you be doing? Is it, was it weight training? Is it uh, physical therapy? Some of these blues players have had some surges over the off season. Where are they at with that? So it's uh, it, it's frustrating, man. It's, it, it's not popular uh, by any means. It's frustrating for the fans. It's frustrating for the players. And, uh, you know, like I said, hopefully, hopefully by December, we'll have at least some sort of date with a plan moving forward. But I feel for these guys, man, it's, it's not easy. They're home a lot over the past six, seven months. They're not used to it. And then without a, not a date in mind, um, they are really in limbo. It's going to be insane watching this in the next couple of weeks to find out because, you know, also keep an eye on what the NBA is doing because the NBA is trying to force the players to uh, return. I guess force is a little bit too harsh of a word, but they're trying to get the players to agree to a deal to return on December 22nd, which uh, would be a quick turnaround. So something to keep an eye on moving forward with the NHL's return. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the legend himself, the longtime NBC Sports broadcast, covering the NHL, Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup. Doc Emmerich, he joins Joe and I next to talk about his career and why he decided to call it a career. Comes your way next here on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN.
Well, welcome back, everyone, into uh, your home for the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN. Of course, it is this week in hockey, along with Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. Joe, excited for this one to get the chance to talk with the legendary Doc Emmerich, who announced earlier this past week that he is announcing his retirement. And there are so many stories and questions that I have to get into. So first things first, Doc, how are you, sir? Thank you for taking some time and joining us today. Always good to talk to you guys. Oh, and I, and I hope this doesn't end just because there's been a fork in the road in my career. Oh, gosh, I hope not, because when we heard the announcement, Doc, I got to tell you, a little bit uh, teary-eyed because I, I knew that I wasn't going to be hearing the uh, the legendary voice on, on all of these national hockey games. Oh, it's kind of you to say. No, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I started 50 years ago when the Blues were only four years old. And when you uh, when you go back that far, you realize you've had a chance to see the start and end of a lot of careers, including Vitale's. And, <laughs> and you've, you've witnessed a lot of things during your time. And you've been very fortunate to, uh, despite cancer, still be healthy during all those years. And so it's um, it's time for a new chapter. Fortunately, NBC is going to give me a, a team jersey and keep me on the roster for a few projects afterwards, but just not all the travel and the play-by-play. Doc, was it something that it just felt like your time was ready? Because, I mean, the big question with everyone right when this news broke was, oh, no, why? Why is the question? So for all those people out there asking, from your perspective, after all these years that you just mentioned, was it just your time? Uh, there actually are people uh, that are older than I am in this world, and invariably I'd be sitting with those people around a table at some restaurant in the off season, and they'd say, are you going to do this again for another year? And, of course, your immediate reaction is, what, do they think I should quit? And, <laughs> and, and I would always come back for another year, and they would say with a knowing glance, you'll know when it's time. And somewhere in the second or third round of the playoffs, that would have been after uh, Labor Day this year, it just struck me that uh, there were a lot of round numbers, 40 years of doing NHL games on television and 50 since I first covered NHL games and 60 since I'd seen my first game. There, there were some round numbers there, and there were also a lot of fortunate things that had happened to me, including NBC protecting me this year by allowing me to do the games from home. And if you've ever seen local television and you know that whenever the studio converses with somebody, say, down near the arch along the Mississippi, there's always a one-second or so delay in their conversation. And the fact that NBC was able to, through all sorts of fiber optics and things that I don't understand, closed that gap down to practically nothing and enabled me to do play-by-play live all the way through the final was just another thing that told me of their commitment to me, but also gave me the idea that this was a wonderful way uh, with all of the competition that all the players had sacrificed for and pulled off. This was as good a way as any to go out. So, Doc, you brought up uh, this this strange year that we had where the NHL and everything was put on pause because of the pandemic and it picked back up. The NHL played in the bubble. What was that like for you over 50 years broadcasting in the stadiums, watching the action live, what was that like this year for you having to broadcast from inside your home, basically, games that were all the way up in Canada? Well, yeah, that was uh, it was odd for one thing. I think probably the two noticeable differences for me, um, 
there was one that wasn't different that you think would have been. The far winger, uh, whether you're doing a game in St. Louis or wherever it is, they usually have us way up high and way back. St. Louis is one of the better locations for, for television. Uh, the far winger is sometimes hard to pick up because it's a four-inch sleeve number you're going for. Not the back of the jersey, but the side of the jersey. And an eight and a nine, the difference is only about a quarter inch of material. And sometimes a 28 and a 29, if they're both right wingers, which seems to be the curse, uh, you can get mixed up. And I hate misidentifying players. That was no different in the arena or on television. I was getting the same picture that everyone was getting at home. But the two things that I noticed that were different were whenever there were line changes, uh, the picture at home was, of course, of a defenseman standing behind the net holding the puck while both teams, or one team at least, were making a change. And the second thing was there were oftentimes five players standing in front of the goalie, a couple from one team and three from another. And if you were doing a series involving Chicago and and, uh, Vegas, that meant that there were a lot of black pants. Maybe a red jersey over black (laughs) pants and a white jersey or a black jersey over black pants, depending on who the home team was. And it was hard to find it in there because the camera was following the puck. And so once that shot was taken from the point, the camera was following the puck, and there were times that you didn't know who it hit when it went in, whether it was deflected or whether it was a clean shot. So I did get help from our truck, and sometimes it was relayed through Eddie Olchek or Brian Boucher. So those were the two occasions where it was not as clean as it might have been had I been in the arena, but I got a lot of help from the guys back there. You know, Doc, it's funny you say that because that makes sense. As watching these games, I actually think that you guys filled that time quite well because I felt you guys, you and Boucher and Eddie, you guys got you guys got a little goofy at times, which, you know, you guys get goofy here and there, but I feel like your personality is really shown through and I could tell that something was kind of going on where you guys were just kind of feeling time. So you guys pulled it off. Terrific. I remember uh, Chris Kerber. Yeah, Chris Kerber was talking to you before game seven at St. Louis Blues against the Boston Bruins a couple years ago. And you guys were in the hallway. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but Kerber loves this story. He went up to, he went up to Doc, uh, Alex, and he said, hey, Doc. And he looks for some advice heading into game seven. He goes, when you're calling a big game and you're thinking of a big moment, what, uh, what kind of call is going through your mind or you're prepping for? And, I think what you said was, you know, well, Curbs, unfortunately, that doggone Al Michaels ruined it for us all, if I remember correctly, <laughs> with, with the uh, 1980 uh, Do You Believe in Miracles, and you're absolutely right, uh, but that was such a funny story. Curbs loves telling it. He loves it because it brings out your personality and your humor, but Doc, my question is, what, what are you going to miss the most? I mean, I see you walking through the locker room and the hallways and these absolute multimillionaire kids and teenagers just stopping their tracks or these Shane Doans of the world, these, these Joe Thorntons, whenever they see you, they just, they are drawn right to you. Everyone in the hallway, they command their presence and everything. And you're just such a well-liked young man. You call the games. What, what are you going to miss most about this whole hockey gig you've been doing for, for so long? That's it. And you know what? It changed, didn't it? Uh, on the 8th of March, when the new guidelines came down about our not being able to go into the dressing room anymore And then, you know, we had those three or four days of covering games when we couldn't go in. And it it is, it's, it's sitting next to guys in the dressing room and, and, uh, and, and forging not only some trust, but also learning about what their lives have been like. Cause 
everybody sacrifices at some point during their career to get to this level, whether it's uh, a dire illness or something that really is a is a physical handicap setback. Do you know what I'm thinking of, Joe? Uh, in their uh, lives that everything. limits them. And how do they fight through that to get there? And everybody's got a story of something that happens to them. Uh, and, of course, uh, in some cases it involves Fredberg, the Cardinals mascot. But, <laughs> but we all have those. Indi- and, and so those are fun to collect. It takes time to get them on. And in some cases you hold those stories for a couple of years. Because you are working with two other people who are there for a reason. And there are times that it's time to show a replay on why something happened. And so you hold those stories, and sometimes, as I said, for a long time. But the most important thing that I miss, and what I missed during August and September, and it wouldn't have made a difference whether I was in Toronto or Edmonton or sitting in Michigan, I wouldn't have been able to get access to the players in the dressing room to get those kinds of stories. That would be what I would miss. It's the same thing I missed this past summer. Well, you know, Doc, it was, it's amazing because when I took the job as a broadcaster, I, I ran into you in the hallway in Chicago, and I said, hey, Doc, Joe Vitale, and you literally came at me, and you're like, Joe Vitale, of course, from St. Louis. You threw a first pitch out with Fred Bird because you had kidney operations as a kid. And you literally <laughs> rattled off this incredible story, and, and everyone has got this same or similar Doc story where you – have this memory like a sponge. How do you remember all these details of so many players? It's not very hard, Joe, because I can't remember statistics. That's why they're written down. But years ago, I think for the first Olympics I did in 1992, it was drummed into our heads by CBS before John Davidson and Mike Aruzioni and I went over to Alberville that people remember stories long after they remember statistics or numbers about players. And if there's a story about someone that is lasting, you remember it forever. Here's, here's one that I didn't get on. Uh, what kind of time do we have? We got plenty of time for you, Doc. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, you may have heard this before because it is, it is documented in his, uh, in his life story that, you know, appears in media guides and so forth. But, uh, when you wind up uh, facing Dallas again next year, just recognize when you see number 12. And he was injured during the final, or I might have had a chance to get this in. Roddick Foxa of the Dallas Stars came from a single-parent home. His mom uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, he was a very good hockey player, as so many of these guys that rise to NHL status. It, it was very easy to determine at a very young age he was going to be very good. But she's a single mom it's a smaller town and it's remote from him being able to develop as a player however a good distance away in the czech republic there was uh, a person that had uh, one of the better hockey teams where he could play at a much higher caliber and he also had a connection with a hotel and so the two of them had a family meeting just the two of them And at age 11, he went to this hotel, and he lived alone, got himself to school by himself, got himself to hockey practices and with the team by himself 
for five years. Can you imagine? So anyway, I learned of this story from, you know, many of the great guys that I've met have been either equipment guys or trainers on teams. And boy, is that ever the case in St. Louis. (laughs) And so one of the equipment guys told me this story on New Year's Eve before the Winter Classic at the Cotton Bowl. And so I said, is Raddick here? He said, I might check him back. Maybe he's gone. I don't know because practice was over the day before. Sure enough, he was still there. I said, I'd sure like to talk to him. So I brought him out. I verified all aspects of the story. And I said, so what was that like? You're 11 years old and you're left in a hotel and your mom goes back home. What was it like? He said, well, for the first few weeks, I was really lonesome. Well, I guess. He was really lonesome for the first few weeks. I'm sure it went beyond that. He said the, re- the real joy in my life was being at the rink, of course, and, and, and practices and playing games. But to carry that on and then to come and play junior hockey in North America and arriving and not knowing any English. But, you know, he had a smile on his face because he was going to play in the Cotton Bowl the next game, the next day against Nashville. And he said, I talked to my mom on the phone all the time. And now they can look back and laugh about it, but you just imagine what that might have been like. Now, a different culture, you know, that wouldn't be allowed in, in the States, but a different culture, different time, and my goodness, what he accomplished, a lot of it on his own and a lot of it because his mom loved him enough to take that kind of a chance. Wow. Just an incredible story. And, and Doc, I, I want to get more into those stories because I know you have a ton of them. we got to take a quick break, but please stay along with us. Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario, it's This Week in Hockey. We are talking with the legendary Doc Emmerich. We'll be back for more here on 101 ESPN. We are back here on a Thursday night. Of course, it's This Week in Hockey along with Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario, and we are talking with the legendary Doc Emmerich who announced his retirement from professional broadcasting a couple of weeks ago. The voice that everyone connects with the National Hockey League on the national stage. And, Doc, I want to get into your career because a lot of people may not know this, but you didn't grow up in a hockey town. You didn't grow up in Canada. You grew up in Indiana, a basketball hotbed, a football hotbed. How the heck did you find your way into hockey? Well, it was pretty easy. I went to a game, a live game, and it was a professional live game in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 60 years ago this December. And that's how a lot of us, Alex, get hooked, is we see a game live. And that's the real advantage of what minor league teams and college teams and NHL teams or anybody that has a game with tickets for sale that you can walk in and see provides. They provide people with a chance to see the game live. And I envision oftentimes I remembered this when I was going into a booth, even in a sold-out NHL arena, Somewhere some in some section tonight, there's somebody that's never seen a game before, and they're seeing this one live. And then I transfer that to somewhere there's somebody watching this game tonight that has just seen his first game or her first game live, and now they want to follow it up by watching this game tonight. So hopefully the players are going to put on a good performance and hopefully I'm not going to get in the way of it and they're going to enjoy it because you just want people to love this sport because of the people that play it. And I'm not trying to be noble here, but that's part of the reason why the decision I reached was in the third round of the playoffs, but the the announcement was postponed for so long after. 
And that was that it didn't want it to be in the way of the draft or in all of the announcements of free agents. It had to have its own place, but it, the, the announcement of the book launch of, uh, of the book that, uh, that I wrote, it had been determined six months ago. So I didn't want to do the interviews associated with the book and be vague about what my future was like if I'd already decided it. And so there were very few days left, and it, so it wound up a week ago Monday. It was the only day available because the book was launched on Tuesday. Now, Joe, if you ever retire from broadcasting, my advice is don't announce it one day and launch a book the next. Save, <laughs> save your memoirs for two months down the road and let the smoke clear first. <laughs> I would imagine you only have time for, for the greatness of shows, which is why you're on our show right now, Doc. You're probably a busy a busy man. Doc, one of the things that fans loved about you, I absolutely worship about your work, is uh, one, one thing, and it's the amount of words you use to move the pocket. And it became hilarious in such a – such a great story throughout your career. And I think at one point, one game, someone marked it, used like 153 different verbs for puck movement. And, and that's what's so intriguing for a lot of people, how you just told a great story and you drew, you drew fans in and you were so educated and just well-versed with all these words. How did the evolution of all this happen? Was it just one day you woke up and said, I'm tired of saying the puck moves here, it shifts there? Or was it just something over time you just – developed and, and did you ever have a cheat sheet with all these different <laughs> words you used no the answer to that is no i never had these written down uh but i'll tell you one thing that that did happen it actually happened on a certain day i was uh in a press box in dayton ohio i was a grad student at miami university nearby about an hour away and i drove to every game i could get to and i had a pass and that was my ticket to speak to anybody that was there from the home or visiting team and an announcer for dayton who later got a year announcing the Washington Capitals named Lyle Steig. He just passed away a couple of years ago. He told me, uh, he gave me some good advice. Uh, he said, if you can come up with different ways to say the same thing that happens in a game repeatedly, like the puck dumped in from center ice, if you say that every time it happens the same way, you'll drive people nuts. So try to come up with a different way of saying that. So that was what he had planted in my mind and then just the raw number of i don't know 3700 games or whatever it is uh you do come up with different ways of saying that and i don't consciously count the number of ways that i do that somebody did and i hope they found other ways to amuse themselves in their life <laughs> but uh, somebody did count it and and it's just an example of how i talk normally i mean the dogs don't understand it but hopefully other people do and that's how i describe how a hockey puck travels but it's also sort of the language that i use when i speak to you so that's it that's the that's the origination of it. So, Doc, you'll get a kick out of this, and Joe, you will as well. So I called my first NHL play-by-play -play game this past year because Chris Kerber uh, was out for a game. And in my studying and prepping for it, I had Doc Emmerich's list of words to move the puck in the game. And I was like, oh, I'll see if I can implement some of these. I had zero success with it, but it was a fun <laughs> studying tool to approach going into a play-by-play -play game. Yeah, I, I think, isn't that funny? I think a lot of us, when we start, and now that you've done one game, you'll be amazed at when you do the second one, how happier you are with it than you were the first. 
And when you do 10, and I always tell people, uh, save the first one. Because after you've done 100, you'll look back at the first one and you say, my goodness, wasn't that something? <laughs> but but isn't, it, isn't it fun, first of all, to do it? And, and especially after you've gotten the first one done, it'll really be fun to do the second one. Because then you'll have that first one under your belt and it's all passed. But it becomes much more relaxed then. I've talked to coaches about this and asked them, um, when you started coaching, were you the same as you are now? And, and invariably, they'll say, I was a hybrid of all the coaches that I ever played for. I took the best of all of them. And I think that's the way you are as an announcer. You said you had my sheep. Well, I'm, I'm very flattered by that, but you'll become more yourself after you've done the first hundred or so of these games. And hopefully your second one is going to be on the horizon. Not that we wish any L for Chris, but that you'll get a chance to do somebody else's games and, and you'll get to do a lot more. But it's a fun way to earn a living. And as I look back on time, uh, I've always told people this. First of all, the thing that appealed to me was you got in free. <laughs> Second, you get a good seat. Normally, although it's a way the heck away in a lot of buildings. Third, you get to work with some of the best people you'll ever meet. And then after I got through the minor leagues, I realized that you got something in the mail twice a month that was pretty good, too. So it, it's a wonderful life. And, and now I get to look back on it with folks like you, which is a lot of fun. That's incredible. Joe, let me jump in on this one real quick because, Doc, i got to ask now, do you remember, and, and it's a crazy question for me to even ask because I'm sure you remember, but what was that first NHL play-by-play game like for you? It's magnificent, and it is uh, because it, it the first time you always remember, it's documented in the book, too, it was, um, it was the Montreal Canadiens and the Philadelphia Flyers, a preseason game at the Spectrum. And I had just come from the American League, and I watched every NHL game I could watch. And because those two teams were among the powers in the NHL, and there weren't many guys wearing helmets at that time, it was Clark Barber and Leach, and it was Lemaire and Schott and Robinson and all those guys. And so I didn't have to do a lot of studying, and I didn't have to try and work my way through helmeted players uh, because you could see the curly hair of Robinson and the curly hair of Clark and all of that. It was it was actually pretty easy. And the other thing I noticed, too, that NHL players don't give you as many surprises as the American League guys did. If a guy is passing the puck from behind his net to a winger that's starting to up the defensive boards, chances are it's going to be right on the money and the breakout's going to happen. Hey, Doc, you know, it's, it's as I finish up here, Alex, before I turn it over to you, uh, this was an incredible interview. I, it's just amazing to think of how many households and people you've touched from these calls. And it's funny, my, my kids every now and then, they're starting to figure out this YouTube thing. And every now and then they'll, they'll, they'll Google Vitaly Goal. And, Doc, there's not many of them, as you know, because <laughs> you, you don't forget many things. But there was one in Boston. I scored the game winner on my face. And you called that goal. And they play that probably once or twice a week. So, uh, just the lasting memory, the lasting memory of your voice uh, will echo for, for centuries, I, I can only imagine. And I just want to thank you personally for all the wonderful work and the professionalism, the friendship and the guidance you've given me, not only as a hockey player and a person, but also a broadcaster. And 
And Alex, that, that's all I got. What a great interview. Yeah, I'll say that. I'll second that, Doc. And I got one more question before we let you go. And I do want to tell people, you need to check this book out. It's called uh, Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. And it's got the forward from Eddie Olchek, of course, Doc's uh, partner on the broadcast. Kevin Allen writes part of this as well. You got to check this book out. I'm so looking forward to cracking this one open. But Doc, as a broadcaster, as somebody who has wanted to get into NHL play-by-play because of your calls, uh, I got to tell you, just thank you for everything that you have done in this industry because you have influenced so many people with your voice, with your call, with your mannerisms. Uh, You are the person that I think of when it comes to hockey play-by-play. So thank you for everything. And I got to ask before we let you go, Doc, uh, out of all of the calls that you have had, what's the one that you will always remember? Well, outside of the one that Joe just talked about that his kids play a couple of times each week, um, I don't know if there's one, but there's one game that is that is mentioned in the book. And by the way, proceeds from all of the anything I get from the book goes to goes to hands-on care of animals, which is very significant in the lives of uh, my wife and me. Awesome. But the uh, the the one I I was most proud to be around hockey. Uh, because 27 million people watched the gold medal game that was carried on NBC from Vancouver between the United States and Canada. The reason I was proud is this. It showed the best part of hockey where you it's a one-goal game. You can't leave the arena because it's a one-goal game and the net is empty at the other end because the goalie's been pulled. Out of a net mouse scramble, Zach Parisi ties it up. And now the Zamboni's going back and forth. And you're wondering who's going to get the overtime winner. And it turns out to be Sidney Crosby. So Canada wins the gold medal. And there's some time that has to pass before the medals are handled out. And in that time, there's an interview done with Crosby. There's another one done with Ryan Miller, who was really gallant despite defeat in performing in the U.S. net. And both of them talked about the Olympic competition, the game, and uh, – just carried themselves so well and so wonderfully about the other team and themselves and their teammates and everything that you would want someone to see that might not be a hockey fan that would have seen that game. And I'm sure that out of the 27 million, I can't estimate the percentage, but a lot of people weren't fans of the sport, but they were watching it because it was one of the last events of the Olympics and the closing ceremony, closing ceremony was going to happen in the very near future anyway. And so that was one of the proudest days that I can say I was around the sport. And why? Because of the athletes that were in it. And that's the number one reason why this sport has flourished despite all of the lockouts and the pandemics that have struck it was because of the guys that suited up and played. That's incredible. Well, Doc, uh, again, thank you so much for joining Joe and I tonight to talk. It's great to hear you again. Congratulations on the retirement, and I can promise you, you will always be remembered in St. Louis for calling that Stanley Cup championship game from the St. Louis Blues. So thank you so much uh, for joining us and giving us these stories. Thank you. It's always good to talk to you guys, and I'll look forward to doing it again. Doc, we look forward to being able to do that again. Thank you so much. Once again, Doc Emmerich, the legend, joining us here on This Week in Hockey. And Joe, I'm speechless, man. Anytime I get the chance to talk with this guy, I feel that I am lucky and blessed because to, to hear his thoughts, get his insight, hear the stories, 
I mean, that's a legend right there. And and it sticks with me every single time I get the chance to talk with Doc Emmerich. And I know a lot of Blues fans, as I mentioned with them before we wrapped up, will always remember Doc Emmerich's voice because he called the Stanley Cup championship for the St. Louis Blues. With Joe Vitale, I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a break and come back and wrap things up next here on 101 ESPN. Final time here tonight on, th- on a Thursday. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Once again, a huge thank you to Doc Emmerich for joining us tonight to uh, to talk about his career and give us some incredible stories. It's something that I'll always cherish, having those opportunities uh, to talk to Doc Emmerich. And, Joe, I'll give you a quick story. I know you talked to Doc about the story of Chris Kerber on the Game 7 of the Stanley Cup. Um, I-, I couldn't believe it when we were out in Boston a couple of years ago for Game 7. You know, before the game started, Doc and Eddie were kind of parked in their broadcast booth a couple of stations down from where Curbs and you and we were stationed walked by him once to go to the bathroom before the game started and of course he goes Alex how you feeling about tonight's game and I'm like oh great thanks doc don't chirp me on this one <laughs> and then he walked by after the first period and goes Alex must be feeling pretty good second period looking good Alex and then the third period of course they come away with the victory so uh, just having doc walk by and remember you every time says something about the human being that he is oh you know and that's what i love about him and that's what we kind of touched on his ability to remember stories remember players and uh to me that was why why it was so exciting you know and, and his humor i mean his humor was as we all know just uh, everything he says it just you want to you have to laugh at yeah there was that same game alex where we um he comes out after the first period and i was out there as well and it was a huge mob of people that were rushing through the hallway. You know, those hallways outside our booths up on that upper deck are not very, not very wide. And uh, all these people are rushing uh, down after the first period to get notes and to, to just kind of do whatever, I guess. He comes out, he almost got mauled over. And uh, he said something along the lines, uh, he comes out and he goes, wow, they must be having tuna tartare at the appetizer <laughs> table this period. And like, and everyone just started laughing, you know, but just, just a guy that's been around the game so long and just, he walks in a room and commands so much presence uh, and just through humility, not through taking over a conversation, not being powerful or being better than anyone else. It's just strictly through humility. And uh, gosh, what, what, what a guess. What a conversation. Big big props to you for getting that guy. That's a big fish. like a big marlin. Well, what can I say? Every once in a while, a blind, uh, blind squirrel finds a nut. Isn't that the saying? It's going to be the saying. I'm going to make it up, if not. Uh, also want to tell you to get that book that we talked about with Doc. It's his book. It's called Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. And he said all the proceeds from the book go to an animal shelter that he does charity work with, which is incredible in itself. So uh, big thank you to Doc Emmerich. And if you missed that interview, you could check it out wherever you get your podcast from This Week in Hockey or head over to 101ESPN.com. Joe, a couple of blues notes I wanted to throw at you before we wrap things up to Tonight, one, the leadership and the captaincy. Jeremy Rutherford put a great piece out the other day on The Athletic talking about Colton Pareko and how Doug Armstrong has said that he is the guy now and they feel confident that he is the guy for this team on the blue line. Brings up the question of could Colton Pareko see a captaincy? And I've heard both sides of it that, you know, you don't want to put all that pressure on a guy like him. You want him to focus on just being the number one defenseman and maybe Orion O'Reilly can handle that load because he's been doing it since he's been here here's one that i want to throw at you jamie rivers didn't agree with me on this one but i want your thoughts what about the possibility of no captain for the blues what about the possibility of having all of these voices in that locker room all of these 
A's, so to speak, alternative captains, until we feel Colton Pareko is ready to be a captain. I like that call. You no, know, I was on with you guys a couple of weeks ago. We, we were discussing the possibilities of this, and and I, I don't think it's a bad decision at all. I mean, does a team need a captain? No. It's more of just, uh, I feel like, tradition. It's not necessarily something the team needs. That team knows who the captain is in that room. That, key, that team knows who the leaders are, and putting a letter on someone's jersey does not change anything about that. So why kind of mess with it? I really think at the end of the day, it comes down to the conversation, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, about you, the conversation you have with Ryan O'Reilly. And you want to make sure that this isn't going to kind of mentally make, mess him up at all, which I don't think it will. He's such a mentally stable kid. Yeah, I think he'll be just fine. But you definitely don't want to be messing with that Pareko uh, idea for an, an alternate captain. I don't know if he's ready. He's still got a lot of growing to do. I mean, he's so youthful. He's so fresh and so green in some areas of the game still. And as he's working on the power play game, as he's working on his offensive game, you know, that's not for a young player. And he is still a young player. Um, so when you have all that on your mind, you know, do you really need to be worrying about dealing with the media every single day? To me, that's way too much to put on Colton Pareko. But do you see an A on him at some point? Absolutely. Sometime this year? I think so. I think he's earned that right. I think he's an incredible leader. I think he leads by example. Our kind of guy. But the, to me, he's a guy that puts his heart and soul on the line every single night. He's incredibly good with all the people around him, the trainers, the fans, uh, the broadcasters, his teammates. So to me, I think that's a home run. Him and Brayden Shen, to me, home runs. Yeah, well, I agree 100%. And just, just being around Craig Berube the last couple of years, he seems like a guy that doesn't care about letters. And I know a lot of coaches don't care about letters, but he's one of those guys, and I've asked him before, you know, the importance of the C and the A. And he said, look, we got so many leaders in this room right now, we don't need somebody labeled as a captain. He said Pet- Petro did a phenomenal job being the captain of going in there and talking with guys, but, you know, he just seems like a guy who doesn't really put too much of a standard on letters when it comes to a locker room. So it was just an idea uh, that popped around, and I wanted to get your thoughts on. And then another one, Joe, is Jordan Cairo, and I think a lot of people should be talking about this because we talk about O'Reilly and Bennington and Robert Thomas and Colton Pareko. I think there should be a lot of pressure right now on Jordan Cairo because – in a lot of people's eyes, and specifically my eyes, this is kind of a make-it-or-break-it year for him in terms of an everyday NHL player because right now, if they don't go out and get another player like a Mike Hoffman or somebody to play in the top six, Jordan Cairo is going to have to come through and be a top six forward for the Blues. Oh, without question. You know, I, I said something the other day, and, and, and I mean it. I, I said I think the most important player for the Blues this season, beside the goalie, because you always got to put the goalie up there, beside the goalie, is going to be Justin Falk. I still, I still believe that to my core that this is a big year for him. You know, the first year in the transition year for him, it wasn't what he was hoping for. He's a much better player. I think most nights than a lot of fans have seen. And I know that from experience of playing against him, the kid really is an incredible player and he's got an incredible amount of upside offensively and defensively. And I think given the right opportunity, he will show that this year. Uh, but the second one to me, uh, if I'm going to put this on a subcategory, who's the most important player for the Blues under the young category, it would be Jordan Cairo. I think this is the the most important year for him. Uh, and this is over the Clem Costins and Nico Mikulas and all those other kind of players as well. I'd even put him above – I'd even put him above our, our – I'm drawing a blank. Who's our new backup goalie? The young uh, kid Billy Husso. Um Billy Husso, Billy Husso, is my blame. <laughs> so I think I think he's I think he's even a bigger year than Billy Husso. I think Jordan Cairo, uh, his expiration date for a young player is slowly approaching. I think he needs to realize that. I think he needs to understand that. I think the veterans need to help him understand that. I think his agent, uh, his people in his circle need to help him understand the idea that you've been here for a couple of years now. We've seen great spurts. 
We're lacking a little bit of consistency. This coach isn't really quite sure what you are. We know you have these great tools and you've got incredible speed. You've got good presence around that. You can certainly bury it. But can you do the things that we need you to do? Can you do uh, the chipping out of the puck? Can you chip pucks in the right areas? Can you be hard to play against? Can you show up for practice every day and put your heart and soul on the line every single day like a pro does? Are you ready to take that step? Alex, if, if he is, the tools that this kid has, I mean, they're insane. And every any player in this league, like the Ryan O'Reilly's, would love to have a half of his speed. He's got the most incredible toolboxes, or excuse me, tools in his toolbox. Now can he translate those tools to build a to build a beautiful house? I mean, really, it just comes down to that. Does he have the attitude? Does he have the mindset? And does he have that kind of F you attitude where he's going to say, no, you're not sending me down this year. You're not pushing me off in the stands. I'm here to stay, and I want to be in the lineup every single night. Every player kind of goes through that. They go through that decision. That decision does come up. No. Heck with you. Heck with you, coach. Heck with you, GM. I'm not going down to the minors. I am going to play every single day, every single night, like I want to stay here. The only thing keeping just Jordan Cairo, excuse me, out of the lineup every single night and a big staple for this team moving forward. A lot of intrigue for this upcoming season. Joey V, I think it's time to wrap up because I heard Birdie Rose in the back. She is sick of you and I talking hockey tonight. Dude, she, yeah, I'm telling you what, when, when this pandemic and all these scary numbers going up is over, I'm just excited to get back to the studio and doing things the way we, we used to do things. Because as much as I love my little girl, I think she's teething or something. Oh, that's, oh. that's the phase. Wait, 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 wait for that phase. I was going to say, I, uh, I can't wait for that phase. Just, uh, just thinking about it makes me so excited. Excited. It's going to be great. <laughs> Joe Vitale, great stuff as always, buddy. Thanks for hopping on as usual, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Big Al. Talk to you next week, man. There you go. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. This Week in Hockey, you can check it out on the website if you missed it, 101ESPN.com. We'll be back next Thursday right here on 101ESPN.